It was a massive perceived step back in role, in title, perception of all my friends. Salary was literally cut in half. I went from having a pretty nice two bedroom apartment in, in downtown Vancouver to sleeping on a friend's studio apartment couch. That's how much of a pay cut it was. And only looking back can I see that it was the single most important decision that I think I've made. From Viton Career Coaching, it's How I Got Here, a show about business leaders, their resilience, and the stories behind their career moves. I'm Vincent Famvan, and I've interviewed thousands of job candidates over the years in both recruiting and as a former corporate executive. Now, I'm on a mission to help you take the next step in your career. A corporate job opening attracts an average of 250 resumes, and just one person is going to get hired. It wasn't all that long ago that I was nervous and frustrated by my job search, but it doesn't have to be this way. You can navigate your career with confidence, spend every day learning, and drive to better yourself. You can be excited about the future. In today's episode, we meet Scott Barker, who's the head of strategic engagement at Outreach, a sales enablement platform, which this summer announced a new $50 million round of funding. This new round of funding values the company at $1.33 billion, and they continue to be backed by the top tech VC firms. Many top companies like Adobe, Glassdoor, Eventbrite, Microsoft, DoorDash, and DocuSign all use outreach to help their sales team bring in new customers. Today's job market is so competitive. There's literally thousands of applicants for every job posting at top employers. So outreach to those employers ends up being really important to make sure that your resume is seen by a human. And so Scott's going to share his strategy that he used to beat out 400 other candidates for a full-time job in tech where he had no tech experience, no existing connections to the company, and even no college degree. But before I get too deep in, I asked Scott what it was like growing up in Canada. Yeah, growing up. So I was extremely lucky uh, to grow up in Vancouver, BC, Canada, which is a gorgeous part of the country. And I remember a lot of outdoors activity. Uh, my mom making me go on hikes all the time. Uh, lots of snowboarding and uh, yeah, just, just the great BC kind of outdoors. We had a big forest in our backyard. So I remember running through that a lot as a kid. And then, you know, as I get into kind of adolescence, uh, sports became a, a really big part of my life. Whether it was sports or job opportunities, Scott oftentimes was the underdog. And I think that this mentality and knowing that he was the underdog oftentimes led to him working twice as hard to be able to prove them wrong. Throughout this episode, you hear a lot of themes around his work ethic, around his grit, and around his learning agility, just how aggressive he was to be able to learn the skills that are necessary to be successful. And a lot of this influence comes from his parents' career and taking a look at the environment where he grew up. My parents, we, we grew up in a, a blue collar neighborhood. So most people were in the trades and my parents were one of the few kind of business professionals. So my dad was a branch manager uh, at, uh, at HSBC. So he was in finance, banking, 
he wore a suit to work, which not a lot of people did. So I think that had an impact on me. Um, and my mom worked in HR, human resources for actually a janitorial company. And uh, yeah, I guess something that that stuck with me is, you know, there was there was different ways of operating and, and making money other than, you know, going into trades, like a lot of the things that I saw around me. So tell me about one of the lessons that you learned growing up. One of them is this idea that, you know, I saw that the support and the belief that my parents had in me and the way that they saw me was kind of how I became. So I took that lesson as the way you interact with your colleagues, your boss, your mentors, your peers, your friends, um, the way that you perceive those people is oftentimes who they become in front of your kind of very eyes. So um, I'm very aware of the way that I am thinking about other people, I guess, because I know that it has a, a tremendous impact. So that was one. And then the second one, I think, was derived from from sports. You know, rugby, as I mentioned, was my my go-to sport. And I'm not uh, I'm not a big guy by any means. Uh, I'm uh, on the smaller side. I played a position called fullback, where you can kind of get away with being smaller. But it was always uh, kind of an uphill battle to make any of the, the really competitive teams that I wanted to, and almost always a nearly impossible task. But I was pretty pig-headed in my belief that I, I thought I could do it and kind of just took this mentality of outworking everyone around me. And it was kind of reaffirmed every time that I would you know make the team and then make the next team and then keep going. So, um, I guess I was, I was really shown that the hard work does pay off. It sounds like being the underdog and even knowing that you're the underdog was what drove you to prove it wrong or that you could gain the success despite, uh, despite going into the situation, knowing that you were the underdog. Totally. Yeah. I think that's certainly what it, what it started to become. It was kind of like, well, I, I did the impossible once. So let's just keep, <laughs> let's see how far we can push this thing. Yeah. yeah. And I, I did end up with a couple broken collarbones and you can't see where it's just audio, but my hands are all <laughs> fingers are broken and stuff. But uh, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun and a lot of good lessons. So, you know, one of these misconceptions, Scott, is that you absolutely have to have a college degree to be successful. And you've yep. proven that wrong, you know, continuing the story of the underdog. Tell me about your decision to drop out of college. Yeah, it was uh, not one that made my parents happy, as you can, you can imagine. And I also will caveat everything that I'm kind of about to say with the fact that I think I grew up in one of the time periods where this was possible, this, this story is, is possible. And that's partly because of the internet, the democratization of knowledge, uh, anything that I wanted to learn, I could learn. Uh, and that wasn't always the case, right? A lot of times knowledge was behind closed doors. You needed certain programs, you needed certain accreditations mm -hmm. to get at it. So I will say that 
Um, and I'm a huge proponent of lifelong education. So it's an it's interesting that that I chose to drop out. It's really about as simple as this. Uh, I remember asking one of my, I believe it was my macroeconomics teacher. Um, we were talking, it was a kind of like a heavy debate over, you know, what business is. And we were going through this and, and I remember just asking, you know, have, have you ever started a business or have you ever been part of a, a successful business? And uh, their answer, I remember was, you know, no, I've been, I've been a teacher like my whole life. I've, I've, and that just, it seems so odd to me um, and not knocking academia. You know, it's fantastic. We need teachers. I think it's such a fantastic profession, but I think the way that I have always learned was by doing or by watching someone who was doing and sort of just mirroring it. So theory and theoretical ideas didn't always um, sit right with me. Uh, I would rather just go and and fail um, and and figure those lessons out on my own uh, rather than you know sitting around and and thinking about it too much. So tell me about the moment where you realized that you needed to make a decision to leave the university that you were at. Like, where were you? Who were you with? How'd you feel? It was right after that class. <laughs> I, and there was probably a component of, there was like a big uh, project that was due that probably played into it a little bit. And I remember, you know, me and my friends were always talking about different, different business ideas and things that we were going to start. Um, and I decided, yeah, I think it was right after that class, we were in the, the cafeteria and I decided that I was going to go out on my own and, and start my own business. So what'd you do next? So this is a, a lesser known chapter in my life, but, uh, and it's, you won't find it on my LinkedIn. Um, I started a company called dorm VIP. So dorm VIP was a laundry subscription service for college kids. Um, before subscription services were a thing, really, they weren't, there weren't that many back then, but I was really solving a, a problem that I saw. And, and I remember in my being so naive, I just remember that that's what I thought business was, which I guess it essentially is. But I just found the first big problem that was in front of me and, and tried to find a way to solve it. This was like five years before TaskRabbit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was, man. It, and there's now, uh, I think it's called like Suds Out. There's quite a few of them um, popping up now that do very similar stuff. They're not just focused on the, the kind of college market like we went through, but there's like $40 million businesses now. So um, mm. maybe I, I jumped out too early, but it was a lot of, a lot of learning. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the learning really resonates there. And I think that the other thing that really stands out to me, especially in the job market that we're in right now, is what you did there. Nobody had to decide to hire you, right? You just kind of took that into your own hands. And so mm -hmm. 
whether it's starting a Shopify store today, whether it's starting a blog today, whether it's starting a podcast today, whether it's starting a YouTube channel today, whether it's starting a newsletter uh, today, you just took destiny into your own control and created your own DIY learning path. Yeah, exactly. I think I think that's an important thing to to highlight is it's not like you can just drop out of school and then hope to go get a fancy job at, you know, McKinsey or some, some firm you do have to. And it's not that you can't do that. I I think you can eventually, but like you said, you have to create your own opportunities to go and, and have that learning in some, some form, you know, whether Mm -hmm. it's even, you know, like starting a podcast, you'll, you'll learn a ton, a YouTube series. Um, There's a, there's a million different things now that are low lift that you can spin up and, You'll learn a lot of skills very, very quickly. So as you think through kind of the different roles that you progressed through, mm-hmm. how did those different roles come to be? For, I believe it was like two years or so, uh, had a lot of success, you know, went from individual contributor to team lead to manager, um, you know, built out a team of 14 people, kind of learned everything on the fly. I then this was, I'm only 21 at this point and feel like I've, I've hit my ceiling almost. Uh, I didn't, I didn't know (laughs) at at least at this company and it it didn't seem overly attractive to go and work at like a flight center or something. I I don't know. It just didn't really interest me. Mm -hmm. And at that time I had a lot of people who I respected and thought were really smart. were going into the tech industry, um, in Vancouver anyway. And uh, it seemed like from what I could gather and my limited perception of how the world worked kind of seemed like the Super Bowl of sales. You know, it, it seemed mm. like it was drawing some of the, the best talent. And so I wanted to find a way to get into tech. And how that came about was me, again, there's kind of this thread of me being naive all the time, but I just started applying for sales managers jobs actually in tech. You know, I, I had been a sales manager um, at this company for almost a year and I figured, Hey, that, that should carry over. But you know, anyone who's been in tech know that we're almost a little elitist <laughs> in our hiring practices sometimes. Um, and so I was told no again and again, cause I didn't have any experience in in tech and uh, probably did have a, a pretty big gap in uh, sales technology. Like we didn't even use a CRM at the old, uh, at global and things like that. So I was finally given a, a shot to be a BDR. Uh, they said, you can, you can start at the bottom and, and, and prove your worth. And that was a really tough decision to make, to make tell, a- Tell the audience a, what a BDR is. Uh, a business development rep. So your job as a BDR isn't even to sell. You are just uh, setting up meetings for your closers. So it is one of the most difficult jobs out there, but will put you on a career track that can completely change your life forever, Um, which I didn't even know at the time. I just knew I wanted to be in tech. This was my way into tech. I had to 
really take a uh, a shot of humility, uh, a pretty yeah. a pretty big one. It was a massive perceived step back in role, in title, perception of all my friends. Salary was literally cut in half. I went from having a pretty nice two bedroom apartment in in downtown Vancouver to sleeping on a friend's studio apartment couch. That's how much of a pay cut it was. And only looking back can I see that it was the single most important decision that I think I've made thus far, or maybe second, one of the most important decisions I made in my my career. Walk me through your decision-making process through that, because that's a leap of faith that I think a lot of people wouldn't take. And yet you're describing it as one of the most important decisions in your career that has set you up to be successful today. So... I think there was a few things that went into that that decision. Um, I knew some people in the industry. They had great things to say. Uh, I actually knew someone at the company, Payfirma. They had great things to say. When I went to the interviews, the two hiring managers, and I still remember them. They're still friends of mine. Chris Farmer was the sales manager. He's now a CRO. And uh, Dave Kennett was the VP of sales. He's now a founder of a really cool company. Um, they were just incredibly impressive people. And, you know, dropping out of school and then having this quick su- success at this other company and entrepreneurship, I had figured everything out on my own up until this point. And I did not have a ton of people helping me. And I saw in these two guys just, I think something that had been extremely lacking in my career um, and I just kind of wanted to be like them in, in five years. And I could see myself being like them in, in five years. What's really interesting about this story is like some of the times in my career where, that have really accelerated me forward is actually when I feel like I'm in a situation where my back's up against the wall, which I'd mm-hmm. imagine is how you feel at that situation, right? You're making this big jump. Your entire, all your friends are seeing you do it. At that point, like you have to succeed. Like failing is not an option because that's almost like putting salt on the wound after you're taking this step that's a perceived step backwards. Totally. I was, uh, I got the most opportunities out of the whole BDR team my first month. <laughs> and that was because there was no chance I was uh, not, not going to lose. I, there was no way I wasn't going to just blow this out of the water. Um, so yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Sometimes the best work is done when, when you feel like you've kind of burned the, the boats behind you. So if we fast forward, you know, today you're with an incredible organization. Outreach mm-hmm. for anybody that doesn't know is a company that helps other companies close more deals. And something that's notable about Outreach is just an incredible growth as a B2B mm-hmm which is business to business, SaaS. It's a software as a service company. Deloitte has this list called the Deloitte's 2019 Technology Fast 500. This is listing out the fastest growing technology, media, telecommunications, life sciences, energy technology companies in North America. And Outreach ranks uh, first out of all the companies in the Pacific Northwest, fourth uh, overall. Companies valued at over 1.1 billion has raised multiple series of funding, uh, over 230 million in funding. And you kind of alluded to earlier that tech's got this stigma of a reputation for what is necessary to be able to break into tech. 
And yet here's Mm -hmm. somebody, you're telling these stories of no experience in tech, no college degree, something that's a little bit more accepted in tech and how you are able to break into that. What advice would you give to somebody else today who's looking to make a similar type of jump from a non-tech industry into tech? Get humble fast is the first uh, first piece of advice. You know, you, you don't know anything. It is a totally new world. And maybe take the viewpoint that the the attitudes that maybe you're feeling like this almost because it does come across a little elitist sometimes um, is kind of there to protect you. Like you are, there's so many things that you might not know coming from a different industry, whether it's finance, whether it's insurance, whether it's travel, whatever, just a lot of best practices that are new and different and a lot of different acronyms. So my advice would be, um, there is a lot, again, going back to kind of the democratization of knowledge, meaning everything is everywhere. There's really good resources that are specific to whatever industry that you want to get into. So if it's uh, SaaS you want to get into, there's resources like Saster. You know, if it's sales you want to get into, check out Sales Hacker and, you know, Content Marketing Institute, if you're trying to get into marketing, there's so many different resources out there that are hyper-specific to exactly what you want to do. And they're just going to help you understand the colloquial terms that people are using and the acronyms and all these things that are essentially some of the hardest, it takes you the longest to pick up. And that will accelerate a lot of your learning. And when you show up in an interview, you know, it's not like you're speaking French to a bunch of Germans, you know, <laughs> at least you're speaking their their language. Yeah, that makes so much sense to me. You know, I similarly had a career at a B2B SaaS company and I felt like I was constantly just Googling things on my cell phone. <laughs> I could be sitting in a room in a meeting with other people and somebody would say something. I'd be like, I have no idea what that is. And I'm like under the table, I'm literally Googling this acronym to try to figure out what it is. I still do that, do that six times a day. <laughs> Google yeah. becomes your your best friend, especially, you know, it's one of those things. It will, it's, that's just getting, um, that's just accelerating, you know, with the pace of innovation across all sectors and all industries, there's going to always be new things that you don't know. Um, so yeah, having, having a good relationship with Google can take you far. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I would say having the realization that if you're looking at other people thinking that they have it figured out, the world is kind of full of people who are perceived as successful. And if you ask them, they would say, actually, I'm still trying to figure it out. I'm extremely lucky to consult and advise for some incredible companies. I get to be a part of this amazing outreach story uh, you know, we had the very successful acquisition at Sales Hacker, but I'm the first to admit that, you know, I'm an unfinished product and I'm still just just learning and on this journey. And I think the most successful people out there, the minute you stop having that attitude uh, is usually the, the, the moment that their career or their life starts to decline. So you're working on a company that's called Outreach right now. You started your career in sales as a business development uh, rep or a BDR. So mm-hmm. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, 
you know, if you were talking to a job seeker today who is looking for advice about how to reach out to other people on LinkedIn cold, mm-hmm. what advice would you give to that person? Yeah, great question. Uh, I'm going to answer that. I'm going to give a few different, different ways. So when I got the job at Sales Hacker, uh, which was my dream job, I beat out 400 people. 400 people applied and most had a lot more experience than I had. Companies like Salesforce, DocuSign, account executives at these really cool companies. Here I was, uh, a BD manager at a SaaS company in Vancouver, Canada. No one even knows, you know, where that, that is compared to, you know, New York, Boston, SF. So I'll kind of walk you through how I did it and then I'll make some adjustments for how I would do it today. Um, And first and foremost, you have to treat the hiring process like a sales cycle, right? So whether you're in sales or not, this is the most important sale that you're ever going to make. So even if it's not a sales role, I would urge people to look up what makes a good sales process, you know, doing discovery, introduction, setting an agenda, all these things, and kind of start mirroring that in your your approach. So treat it like a sales cycle. Number two, know that you're going to need a lot more than just the hiring manager or the recruiter um, to be on your side to beat out a lot of candidates. So one of the best things to do is if you're going for a role, let's say you're going for a, a BDR role. Well, don't just be talking to the recruiter. You can easily find out who's going to be your manager in that role. Go see the BDR manager. Re- shoot them a connection request on LinkedIn. As you're doing that, shoot three of the BDRs who are actually in that role that you want connection requests. Say, hey, you know, I'm going for this role. I want to make sure that it's like a perfect fit on both sides. Do you mind if, you know, we chat for 30 minutes um, so I can kind of understand a little bit more about the role? 90% of people will say, okay, right? They're, they're just doing their thing. They want to help. And so get multiple people on board. That's something that I did um, that ended up being extremely important later in the process. I got the VP of marketing at the time kind of on my team. I had a meeting with him that was separate to all the interviews. Um, I set up a meeting with the person who was I was ultimately replacing, who was moving on. And they gave me so much more insight than I could get from the job description or even from the recruiter. Because oftentimes these recruiters, they have so many different roles that they don't fully understand it. So even when they're articulating it to you, they might not be setting you up for success to have the conversations you need to have. Um, so those are a few ways I would do it is get multiple stakeholders on your team, interview someone who's actually in the role that you want. Um, and you can, you can, uh, tell the recruiters or the hiring manager that you've done that. And that shows a lot of initiative. I would also take an omni-channel approach. So send people an email, a LinkedIn, um, a video, video helped with my uh, process, humanizes you, you stand out. 
And then lastly, how I would do it today, if I were to go back, I would probably set up a podcast or I would set up a video series, um, like a LinkedIn video series or YouTube series. And I would actually ask the hiring manager to come on my podcast or video series and interview them for an hour. We then have a relationship uh, before the whole process kicks off. That's how I do it. Yeah, you're a podcast host as well, which we'll put a link to your podcast in the show notes here. But there's something that every podcast host knows and potentially discovered accidentally, which is you can reach out to almost anybody and ask for an hour Mm -hmm. and get an opportunity to ask any question that you want for the most part. And it's such an incredible way to be able to meet other people that you might not typically have the opportunity to be able to do. Let's talk a little bit about you mentioning sending emails to people. You're mentioning uh, sending LinkedIn connection requests or private messages, or if you have a premium account, you can send an email. The content of those messages, like what makes a great message? Relevance. I would say relevance. So, you know, for a long time, I think it was beaten. The word personalization was beaten to death. And what people um, took that to mean was if I just make this person feel special and personalized, um, then I'm going to get their attention. So that was, hey, I saw you went to Texas A&M or, hey, you went to UCLA or, you know, I saw on Instagram you like Jack Daniels or (laughs) whatever it is. And it was that personalization that was the hook. You now you need to use your business acumen. Um, to make it business relevant. So you need to find a way not only to show, yes, I've done my homework, but here's why I'm relevant to you right now. And here's maybe a piece of value I can give you um, that's, that's above and beyond just what I'm trying to, to sell, which in this case is, is yourself. So I always coach people that every... Every message, every piece of content, every, everything that you're trying to do to get someone's attention needs to be a standalone product, meaning you're trying to sell them on you, but that's not, but, but the, the email or the video or whatever you send them needs to be inherently valuable in and of itself. And if you start doing that, um, you'll see a world of difference. I love what you're saying with the relevance, right? Because you can mention a college, but that doesn't necessarily help you unless you also went to that college, which mm-hmm. all, it would be great with if every person that you wanted to connect with went to your same alma mater. But the reality is that's not the case. And yeah. so just merely mentioning something that you saw really doesn't matter until you tie that to something else. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to read out to you the best cold email ever received. So this was when I was in a CMO role and somebody was trying to reach out to grab a conversation with me. Um, I'm a big Anthony Bourdain fan. Like I love Anthony Bourdain. You know, when I travel, I'll literally look up where he went and that'll be the restaurant uh, list. 
And it's not something that is like a big secret about me. You know, I've, I've retweeted tweets. You can see that I was following his account on Twitter, on Instagram. These are public profiles for me. So I got an email. The subject line was, I'm not afraid to look like an idiot, quote, Anthony Bourdain. And then the first line is a very short email. It's like four sentences. Vincent, it's very nice to meet you. We haven't met at this point. Uh, I discovered your company while doing some research. And I have to say, I like the idea that you guys are building and I hope that the market catches on. I'm sure that you are very busy, but apparently not busy enough to read this email and that you're excited about the opportunity. But I noticed that you were a fan of the late, great Anthony Bourdain and you're possibly a foodie like me. That's the connection right there, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. The human to human connection. So in his words, I'm not afraid to look like an idiot, meaning that I am willing to go out on a limb. I would love to have a brief conversation with you and you can let me know if you think I'm right or an idiot. Please let me know if you're interested. I hope that we can connect soon. I love it. I love it. I love the brevity of it. It's short. It's punchy. You're you're talking to a CMO, you get a million different emails. I bet your brain shuts off if you see like a big chunk of, of text. I love it, man. That's uh, kudos to that. Do you want to sh- shout out the, the company who sent that? Yeah, it was, uh, it was Blake Herndon. Yeah, nice job, and, Blake. Nice job. Yeah, very nice job, Blake. And that got an instant conversation because you're right. Um, you know, I get a lot. Of, I got a lot of emails at the time that were very clearly templated. Some of them had "quote unquote" personalization, like you're talking about. It might have had my name. It might have had a school. It might have had a company name. But now, with technology, even then, I don't know if it's actually a handwritten message or if it was mm-hmm. just really good technology. Um, but this, what I loved, was it showed commonality by taking things to just one level, one more level. Mm-hmm. And I would be a jerk if I didn't respond to that message. Totally. Right. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, I think those are the components. So, you know, Blake sent that message and I think I did respond within, actually, I guess I can see. Uh, yeah, I responded within under a day. Yeah. And like, had I have not responded though, I mean, you must have seen as a BDR and throughout your sales career, like what does good follow-up look like? Like a lot of people are nervous about being too aggressive versus some people just send the first message and then just don't follow up. Mm -hmm. What would you guide somebody who's trying to reach out to a hiring manager or a recruiter or somebody who's going to be a future peer? Yeah. So first, you know, if you're expecting a response after the first email or first outreach you're you're dreaming i think the the latest is uh average response is like the 13th 13th touch i think it's the latest um again i would go back to uh omni channel is huge right so don't just set that so 13 touches doesn't mean 13 emails uh in in 13 days so space your your outreach out uh, over, let's say, you know, three weeks. Um, and people like, uh, you have to meet people on the channels that they like to show up on. So for example, a lot of VPs of sales, you know, actually still like talking on the phone. So if you cold call them, sometimes they'll, 
they'll kind of banter with you because they remember making cold calls back in the day. Um, VPs of marketing or like CTOs, you cold call them, they absolutely hate it, <laughs> you know? So, um, but they're, they're showing up somewhere. So doing your research, making the calls, doing the emails, going on LinkedIn, looking at sub communities as well. This is something that often is, is overlooked. People think, hey, LinkedIn is the only B2B community out there. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you won't find a lot of engineers on, uh, on these communities, but there is a ton of communities for just about every persona out there. You just have to do a little bit more research and maybe start showing up in those communities as well. And uh, a lot of people, when I say this, uh, their rebuttal is, no, like, I promise my persona is different. I sell into neuroscientists and there's no neuroscientist community. And what I always say in that case is it is the perfect opportunity to build your own. So you oh. could actually build your own community um, of the persona you're trying to get in front of, be yeah. the person that's known to facilitate conversations. And then you have an immense amount of power to reach out to, to anyone. Um, so that's, uh, that's a few, few ways. Omni, Omnichannel again, show up in communities uh, that they are present in uh, and build your own community if you, you can't find one. That's a stat that always baffles me. And like, I know it and I live it and breathe it now that you're going to lose half of your opportunities if you don't go past seven to 13 touches. Mm -hmm. You're going to lose half of your opportunities if you don't keep going after seven to 13 touches. But that doesn't mean 13 emails. Mm -hmm. Like a touch can literally be, you hit that like button on a post or even better, you hit that love button on the post because less people do that and you leave a comment. Uh, on that post, you know, a touch could be, and something a lot of people don't know is you can actually leave voicemails in LinkedIn through the private messages. So if you're in the LinkedIn app, you could type a private message, but if you hit that voicemail button and you press and hold it and just record a 30 second message, guarantee you the other person doesn't get too many of those. They're going to listen to it. They're going to listen to it, but it's just a reminder that there's an email that they likely know about that they haven't responded to. And it's just, uh, you know, little notification bell reminder that they still need to respond uh, to that email. And the last one is, you do not need anybody's permission to follow them on LinkedIn, just to connect with them. But you can follow anybody on LinkedIn without connecting to them and they don't have to approve it, which means that you'll see their posts on your newsfeed and it makes it super easy to be able to get one of these touches in. Scott, what do you think? I love it, man. I, I, you know, following people is, is huge. And then you can actually extract information from that. You can be just a watcher and a listener and say, hey, I see that you recently liked this article on XYZ. Um, this is a part that really stuck out with me. And then tie your value prop in. Uh, that can be uh, super helpful. And then the last one I'll throw in there is you know, we used to have a lot of success uh, using, using video. And you have to get creative now because it's, it's got a little saturated, you know, don't use the old, you know, name with the whiteboard on it. Too many people did that. But um, it's a good chance, again, to humanize yourself. It's a touch that I usually wouldn't have even a call to action. It would kind of just be like, hey, I got tired of talking to myself uh, on your voicemail. So I thought I'd make you a quick video uh, so you can put a face to the name. 
uh, you know, get back to me when you get a chance and just keep it short and sweet. Build a little humor in there. Don't take yourself too seriously. And uh, it was a touch that a lot of people used to actually respond to, even though there was no call to action. Tell me about a common myth about getting an incredible job at a company like Outreach. I think a lot of people don't even throw their hat in the ring. You know, it seems like, um, you know, these big unicorn companies are impossible to ever get in front of. Um, and it's, it's not the case, you know, and there are certainly people that, you know, you take chances on just because of like character and, and something that you see in someone. So I would say, throw your hat in to any of these cool companies, use some of the, the tactics and strategies that we, we talked about today, you know, start some sort of podcast or video series and use that to talk to the hiring manager. And, uh, you know, it's not, not as hard as you, you would think. Tell me about a mistake that you've read, made recently, like something that you've, you looked back and you were just like, I shouldn't have done that. Like, what, what was it? What'd you learn from it? Uh, there's so many. I'm, I'm, I have this thought or this in my, in my career and in my life, every mistake or every bad thing that's happened to me, almost always, I don't know why, it seems to be followed by something really good. Um, so now I have that mentality and it's a really good one to have. It's where I'm not afraid to make, make mistakes or even when something bad happens, I'm kind of just like waiting for the, the good thing to happen. And I think why that happens, it's not like I'm inherently lucky or anything, I think it's because when you go through mistakes or when you have bad things happen, um, you, you grow, right? You, you, you see the world through a different lens. So when you grow and you see the world through a different lens, you then open yourself up to these new opportunities and you can see them. One that sticks uh, in my mind, it's not overly recent, but it's one that I think about frequently is right before... I joined uh, Sales Hacker, which was uh, about three years ago, uh, an incredible, incredible opportunity that I was given um, that changed the trajectory of my career and how I ended up at Outreach through an acquisition. Um, I was actually headhunted by this, by this really cool company out of Vancouver. Um, one of my old VPs of sales, you know, kind of came to get me. I wasn't looking for any role. But he's like, hey, man, we're... God, we're, we're growing so unbelievably fast. We need someone like you. Uh, come run business development. I was like, okay, cool. Let's do it. And my mistake, my big mistake was I went into it woefully unprepared. I thought they came at me. They want me. I have all the power. This is just going to be a breeze and I'm going to get this position. And it's going to be awesome. I, uh, made it to the kind of final interview with the CEO and the CEO's feedback was kind of like, meh, hmm? wasn't all that, that impressed. And I think it was my first time in my life where I, I didn't ridiculously over-prepare. Usually I'm, I'm over-prepared for situations and uh, I really let that slip. So ultimately um, they made a decision not to, uh, not to hire me they ended up getting acquired by Apple, 
which would have been a cool story. <laughs> but looking back, um, me making that mistake, if I had gotten that job, it wouldn't, I would definitely not have gotten the job at Sales Hacker because I would have been, I wouldn't even have seen the opportunity because I'd be at a new role, two heads down. Um, and then it wouldn't have led to this, you know, absolutely incredible journey that I've been on for the last, last three years. What are the best resources that have helped you along your career? You've mentioned quite a few of them on this episode already, but anything else that you want to mention and where can our listeners connect with you online? Mm -hmm. Uh, so connect with me online, uh, LinkedIn. I'm super active on, on LinkedIn. Uh, that's the best way, uh, resources, you know, sales hacker, before I even joined, uh, I kid you not, that is how I built that, that successful program that I talked about that I had no business building. I just read stuff on Sales Hacker, took it from online, put it in the real world, and lo and behold, it, lo and behold, it worked. So anyone in sales, Sales Hacker is a fantastic uh, resource. Um, I have a, a weekly newsletter called The Forecast, uh, where I try and predict future growth best practices. So you can you can check that out. Um, and then the Sales Engagement Podcast as well. If uh, Again, these are all pretty, pretty sales and growth heavy, but uh, that's the world I, I live in. So yeah, those would be a few. Awesome. Well, if you're interested in a growth career, definitely check that out. Sales Engagement Podcast. It's a really great podcast. Scott Barker is the co-host of this podcast, the number one podcast focused on sales engagement in the modern B2B era. Scott, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, man. That was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for listening to the show this week. If this podcast was helpful to you, the best thing that you can do to support is please consider rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts. This helps us help more people just like you move towards the life that they desire. Visit our podcast on Apple Podcasts, then scroll to the bottom, tap the rate with five stars, and just leave a sentence or two about what you loved most about this episode. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts, or you can write at hello at viton.com. I'm Vincent Fanvan, and you've been listening to How I Got Here.